Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you, Father, that in all of your sovereignty, all your wisdom and providence, that you've held this small church together for so long. The world would say, Father, that uh, that small things are insignificant. The world would teach us that a quiet voice won't get much done. I know the world believes, Father, that unless something is big and impressive on the outside, there can't be much of substance on the inside. And yet, we're thankful, Father, to have the counsel of your word because it teaches us the truth concerning these things. And what we know, Father, from what we've learned is that you speak in a quiet and still voice. And we know, Father, that you use weak things. And we know, Father, that you prefer not to speak in a way that the world recognizes, but only in the way that the Spirit recognizes so that we know it's truly from you. And so we take comfort, Father, in the fact that you can do mighty things, even with a small and somewhat insignificant gathering, because it's not insignificant to you. For you're building up the hearts of each person in here, and I thank you for that. And you're giving us each an opportunity in our own walk to spread the gospel as ambassadors. And I thank you for the blessing that it is to work with you in that way. And, Father, you're schooling each of us on what to expect in the days that will come and in the kingdom that awaits. And you're giving us a vision and a hope for that and an excitement for it. You're doing all these things, Father, for you love us and you want to show us these things and reveal yourself to us through your Son. I thank you for these things, Father. And I also ask, Father, you forgive us for setting these things aside at times or thinking them too miserly, too little to bear our attention and time. And this morning, Father, I thank you for reminding us of the importance of self-discipline and self-restraint so that we can show love to others. Continue to accomplish these things, Father. Continue in the days that remain to bring us closer to you so that we may please you and we may receive the good reward you have waiting for us. I pray these things in a hopeful expectation and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, at the end of chapter 9, let's kind of remember where we were. We At the end of chapter 9 last week, we were discussing Paul's two reasons for why he chooses to restrain his liberty at times. One of those reasons was simply to demonstrate love for others, for other Christians, by not becoming a burden to them. Specifically, he was talking about not taking financial support from them at times because even though that was his right and he had a reason to expect it, he didn't want to burden them. Just out of love, just out of concern. But as you remember, when we ended last week in chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians, we were noticing that Paul was emphasizing his second reason far more than he was emphasizing the first reason. The first reason of love is not any less significant, but, but that second reason, that was the one Paul chose to emphasize. He argued that restricting personal liberty was a strategy for increasing our effectiveness in ministry, and through greater effectiveness in ministry, we garner even greater reward from our Lord. So Paul made restricting personal liberty a means to an end. He could please the Lord, he said, all the more by making those personal sacrifices. And by pleasing the Lord, Paul said he knew he was earning something far more valuable than anything he was willing to give up in this life. And that was something eternal. That my own personal reward and my own effectiveness and my own ability to earn that reward hinges on self-discipline 
self-restraint. And he says this at the very end of chapter nine. Paul comes to this central point on Christian liberty. Verse 27, he says, I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. He uses that arresting term disqualified. And it causes us to question for a moment, what can I be disqualified from something? What is he talking about? And we learned last week he means disqualified from enjoying the benefits of serving Christ. Paul preaches to others that they should live to please the Lord and to prepare for their judgment day. And so what a shame it would be for a man like Paul to have spent his career preaching that message. And then at the end of it all, risking losing his own potential for reward by not disciplining himself, by not restraining his liberties when needed. That would be the point of what he's saying. He says we have to discipline our bodies if we want to ensure that positive outcome. And the discipline he's talking about, obviously, is the denying of our flesh, the restricting of our fleshly desires, even those that we have liberty to pursue at times, doing so when necessary and doing so purposely so as to accommodate the needs of the gospel. And he uses that great analogy that I think we can all appreciate easily, that of an athlete. An athlete must deny their body certain things and then push it to perform in certain ways that it may not prefer. Why? So that they can take home the prize. Simply put, it's not enough that we have been given salvation. We must work out that salvation in the way Paul says to the end that we please the Lord by our choices and our decisions. We exercise self-control for love for others. Yes, we do that. But we also do it for our own eternal interests. And that was Paul's focus. And then he adds, furthermore, if you don't make the point of exercising self-discipline, if you don't make that point in your life, if you don't restrain your liberty, there is a chance that your lack of self-control, your lack of self-restraint will eventually become sin and lead you down a road that diminishes the pleasure of the Lord. One day you could be eating your your meat sacrificed to an idol, which is perfectly reasonable within your liberties. Paul's already said that. And then the next moment you might find yourself comfortable in practicing idol worship that comes in conjunction with the ceremony where the meat is served. Just one example that came to my mind, you know, one moment you're watching a PG-13 movie and enjoying it, which you certainly have liberty to do in most cases. But then the next minute, well, what will you be willing to accept in your home? What images will you find reasonable? What sin will follow from that first decision? You see, the problem is not that the first decision is always wrong. The question, though, is do you have the self-restraint? Do we have the self-discipline to know those boundaries and to steer clear of them and to do so not only for our own interests, but for the love of others? Again, the problem isn't the enjoying of liberty. The issue is, are we spiritually mature enough to control those desires and even to put them aside altogether when the situation warrants. So that's where he ended. Chapter nine ended on that sobering reminder of the value, the personal interest we have in this exercise of self-discipline. And now in chapter 10, the third chapter of these three chapters on the issue of liberty, Paul is going to move to illustrating his concern using an example from the history of Israel. That's what we'll spend our time on today. Look at chapter 10, verses one through five. Paul says, for I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same 
spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Paul uses this phrase, for I do not want you to be unaware, brethren. He uses it actually quite frequently. You might remember there's places in Romans he uses it and elsewhere. This is a sign to us that he's about to give us some proof. And, of course, with Paul, the proof is always out of the Old Testament. And here you see him proving, by way of example, using the nation of Israel's time in the desert, the wanderings of Israel after they leave Egypt. The Israelites are a powerful example of how a failure to restrain your sinful fleshly desires can lead you into destruction in one form or another. And from their experience, Paul's going to make an application to the Corinthian church and, of course, for us. So Paul starts by drawing our attention to the fact that all of these people in Israel's case, all of them, they all shared a common set of experiences. They all had a common knowledge of God. For example, he says the Jewish fathers, or another way to say it is our ancestors, he says we're all under the cloud. And that's a reference to the pillar of cloud that we're told accompanied Israel as they wandered through the desert. This was a manifestation of God's glory. And it was also evidence of God's love and his mercy and his kindness because in the heat of the Arabian desert, wandering through the day, a group of two million plus people with kids and animals and all the rest, the heat would have done them in on day one, much less the 40 years. But what God did in mercy was he covered the sun over them during the daytime so that they were always in shade, even as they moved through the desert. And at night, he had a pillar of fire so they could see in the dark and it would protect them, etc. God did these things to shield his people because he cared for them. That was the first thing he notes. Secondly, all these people, he says, passed through the sea. And of course, that's a reference to their going through the Red Sea as God parted the waters. That experience proved to them and to us of God's power to deliver us from our enemies and specifically Israel from Pharaoh. And also it demonstrates God's power against his enemies as he vanquished Pharaoh's army. And then third, Paul says this group was baptized into Moses. What Paul is saying is he's using the word baptized here in the sense of being incorporated into a single body or being baptized into a single body. The entire nation experienced a type of baptism as it passes through the sea and as it entered into the covenant of Moses. That's why he calls it the baptism of Moses. This inaugurating of a covenant which then had the effect of binding this group of people into one body. And the Red Sea Passage was a method or an instrument of that process of getting them to the place of the mountain where they could be brought into the covenant. And in all of that, it types the baptism that we have in the spirit. Finally, he says the entire nation received powerful examples of Christ while they were in the desert. Spiritual food, which is a reference to the manna. That is a picture of Christ in that it is bread coming down from heaven. And they drank from the rock from which all the water flowed out. And that's a picture of Christ, the rock, struck for our sin, producing life-flowing water, life-giving streams of water. All of these things were intended to show them Christ. The nation of Israel in the desert can be seen as a picture or an example of believers individually. So just as that group of Israel experienced God's mercy and deliverance and a baptism of sorts, and a covenant relationship, and communion with Christ through food and drink, just as they had those corporate experiences as a nation, we individually, as believers, have the fullness of each of those things. Where they had a type, we have the fullness of it. 
They receive things as shadows while we receive them as a full form. So if anything, we should have all the more reason to respond in the right way to these things. So what did they do with what they learned? Paul goes on from there. Look at verses 6 through 10. Look at what happened to them despite all that they were given. Verse 6, he says, Now these things happened as an example for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play, nor let us act immorally, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day, nor let us try the Lord, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. In a remarkable statement of providence, Paul starts the lesson of what happened to them by saying that the Lord orchestrated the events of those 40 years in the desert so that his children could learn important lessons. We could probably consider that statement all by itself for an entire Sunday. What a remarkable statement of God's sovereignty. The people of Israel were brought out of Egypt in this dramatic way and ushered through 40 years of experiences for your sake and my sake. And for the sake of all believers who might benefit from knowing something about it. So maybe we ought to learn something about it, right? Maybe we ought to devote some time to understanding. What do we learn? And particularly from the examples Paul cites here. Paul says the central reason for believers to understand this story is so that we will not crave evil things like they did. Paul is not suggesting, I should add, that the generation that left Egypt were all believers. That's not part of the theology that's present here in this text. On the contrary, Scripture makes very clear elsewhere, and in the book of Hebrews particularly, that this generation of Israel was an unbelieving generation that by and large lacked saving faith apart from a remnant. But nevertheless, the collective experiences of this nation hold important lessons for believers today individually. And that central lesson, according to Paul, is self-restraint. Not craving evil things. And in doing the comparison, their experience nationally to our experience personally, he has four moments that he mentions, four moments as examples out of the 40 years. And I'm going to look at each of these just briefly. The first one, he says, is don't be idolaters as some in Israel have become. And he's referring to Exodus 32, verse six. In that chapter, the Israelites choose to worship the golden calf while Moses is away and they assume he's not coming back. Let's just read a few verses from that chapter just to understand what Paul is referring to. In verse 1 through 6 of chapter 32 in Exodus, Paul is referring to this. Now, when the people saw that Moses had delayed to come down from the mountain, the people assembled about Aaron and said to him, Come, make us a God who will go up before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Aaron said to them, Tear off the gold rings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. Then all the people tore off the gold rings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. He took this from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made it into a molten calf. And they said, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Now, when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation saying, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. So the next day they rose early and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Now, you can easily see Paul's reason for citing this example. The people wanted to engage in a religious meal service. In the pagan traditions of Egypt, 
which is where these people had just spent all of their physical lives and several generations of lives, right? It was a pagan tradition that a religious service always involved an elaborate meal, and often that's followed by sexual acts, often with prostitutes who served the worshipers. This was common pagan ritual. Does that sound familiar? Doesn't that sound exactly like what we said is going on in the pagan temples in Corinth in the time period that Paul is writing this? So in their day, Paul says that Israel longed to eat in one of these feasts and to play afterward. And that's euphemism for sexual immorality. But because they lacked a spiritual leader at the moment, Moses was gone and we don't know where he is. They literally could not hold the feast. In their day, you could not hold a religious service without the religious leader. We're not constrained in that way. We, we would have church regardless of which elder or which pastor or whomever is here, right? But in their day, you had to have that religious leader to convene the assembly and to lead it and declare that it would happen. So here's what's going on. They want a feast and they want sexual immorality and they don't have a Moses and they're sitting there going, well, how are we going to get our feast? Oh, Aaron. Can you handle this problem for us? We need an idol. We need something to worship. Can you create something for us? And then Aaron obliges. And then after they have the idol and Aaron sees that they're willing to worship it, he says, we feast tomorrow. It was all about the food and the sex. That was the intent. That was the interest. This isn't a group of people that suddenly decided they forgot the living God. This is a group of people who could not constrain their cravings for fleshly things. And it led them into idolatry. Isn't that Paul's central concern? Can't you see his point here? When our fleshly desires control us, they eventually can lead us into serious sin. What starts as a desire for food becomes a desire for sexual pleasure. And what is then sexual sin becomes cause for idolatry in their case. That's a slippery slope. And when we think we're above the possibility of that kind of an outcome, we're just fools, according to Scripture. Anytime you give in to your flesh, you cannot be sure where it is ultimately going to lead you. The enemy is crafty. He knows our weaknesses. He'll tempt you. He'll tempt your flesh in one capacity, one where he knows you're weak and perhaps one where you're not terribly worried about it. And he'll do so so that you can become comfortable with the whole idea of living in your flesh. And once you're practiced at giving into your flesh in one aspect of your life and it begins to rule your heart, then you are inevitably going to walk further and further away from the Lord and more temptation will come and more giving in will result. What you feed, you get more of. And the enemy's smart enough to know that he doesn't go after the chief sin first. How many Christians would say yes to the question of would you like to go worship an idol? I hope none. But it's no doubt that that number is less than the number who would say yes to having a nice meal somewhere. What if that somewhere happens to be in a pagan temple? What if that somewhere happens to be in a topless bar? Well, that's just a small compromise. After all, it's, it's just the food. I'm just not going to pay attention to the rest of the stuff. You see the problem? Paul uses three more examples to reinforce this same point. They all add just a new element to the pattern. In verse 8, Paul warns us of another time when the Israelites were drawn into immorality. That comes out of Numbers 25, where the Israelites followed after sexual desires once again to take daughters of Moab against the Lord's instructions. And this was a clear disobedient act. Numbers 25, verses 1 through 3. While Israel remained at Shittim, the people began to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab. For they, meaning the Moabites, invited the people to the sacrifice of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods, 
And so Israel joined themselves to Baal of Peor, and the Lord was angry against Israel. If you read more of this story, it's very interesting what happens. The men take an interest in the women of Moab, and they want these women. And the men of Moab said, you can't have our women unless you worship our gods. And so in order to get the women, they were willing to go to this feast and worship these gods as a means to the end of their flesh. Craving flesh led them into idolatry. In verse 9, Paul reminds us of a different episode in Numbers, Numbers 21, the one of the fiery serpents, if you know the story. Verses 4 through 6 of Numbers 21, speaking of Israel. Then they set out from Mount Hor by way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the people became impatient because of the journey. The people spoke against God and Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this miserable manna. The Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many of Israel died. Same pattern. Once again, fleshly desire, now for food, causes them to speak out against the Lord, and as a result, they see his judgment in the people. And then lastly, verse 10, another Numbers moment, Numbers 11, verses 4 through 6, you read this. The rabble who were among them had greedy desires, And also the sons of Israel wept again and said, who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish which we used to eat free in Egypt, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, the garlic. But now our appetite is gone. There's nothing at all to look at except this manna. You were in prison. You were slaves. You were fed while you were being beaten. But it's better than what God's giving you. If the pattern isn't clear by now, then we're not paying attention, right? Greedy, fleshly desires are a trap for the soul. And the fall comes inevitably if we give in to them. Our liberties offer us limitless opportunities to enjoy the life that God has granted us in Christ, but with great power comes great responsibility, as the saying goes. To quote, I think, Marvel Comics. I'm not sure where that comes from, actually. Spider-Man, is that it? Yeah, I'm sorry. I go far and wide for my inspiration. I'm sorry, that just is one of those places. You know, we have to live in control of our fleshly desires. We have to exercise sound and sober judgment. And, of course, the standard of Scripture is higher than most of us will ever meet this side of heaven. I get that. No one's going to stand around and say they were perfect in this regard. But the fact that we can't be perfect doesn't mean we aren't supposed to try to be as good as we can. In other words, the failure on one day doesn't excuse the failure of the next day. The expectation is we're working on this in a continual fashion, knowing that there are eternal things at stake. We must exercise sober judgment concerning when and where and how we enjoy our liberties. And that enjoyment must be self-disciplined so that we do not harm others or we don't put ourselves in a position where we might slip into some greater spiritual sin. The Spirit will give us everything we need to exercise that kind of control if only we're willing to listen to Him instead of our flesh. But Paul makes clear that our success does depend on our willingness to endure the challenges that every athlete knows. The saying is simple. No pain, no gain. It is a spirit-led and spirit-enabled process, yes. But that does not negate the fact that as an athlete, in the analogy Paul uses, we have to have a willing participation in the process of the training. 
If you've ever been a part of a sports team, whether you've coached it or just been a player, you always know that one player who just doesn't seem to have the inner desire that the team needs them to have. They have the talent so often it seems such a shame to watch it go to waste. I've seen this in kids, you know, or even as you watch professional athletes. But it's evident. There's something inside them. They just don't have that desire to get engaged and work with what they've been given. And they waste it. Using Paul's analogy, that's really the situation we all find ourselves in in this one area. We have all of what we need in the spirit to accomplish what God's asked us to do in this area, to avoid the sins that are common to all men, to deal with our flesh, to discipline it like an athlete disciplines their body. We can do it. The issue is, have we made that our priority? And are we motivated by a knowledge of what's at stake? Paul goes on in verses 11 through 13. He says, now these things happen to them. Speaking of Israel, as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Well, therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation, he will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. Verse 13 is one of those verses I keep coming back to in my own life because it's it's so convicting and so simple and profound and it will change your life as a Christian. Paul starts by saying the events that came upon the unbelieving generation of Israel came upon them to teach all men an example. And it's especially, he says, an example for those who know the fullness of Christ. You and I, the, the New Testament believer. If we think, Paul says, if we think we're so strong in our faith that we have nothing to fear as we go about exercising our liberty, then Paul says, in a warning, take heed then. Because he says, you know, the Israelites, they fell into temptation time and time and time again. But I want you to remember what they had exposure to prior to all of those sinful moments. They saw miraculous wonders of God in Egypt and in the desert Beyond anything anyone in here has ever seen. We haven't seen what Moses saw. We haven't seen what those people saw. So if it was merely a matter of making a big impression on someone, and that's what it takes to get them to follow God in a full and true way. Well, these folks had it going for them. They had every opportunity. They didn't follow. So so here's the Christian today who's so sure of themselves. They're so strong in their faith. They know the word. They go to church. They do all the right things. And then the opportunity to exercise liberty in some questionable circumstance comes their way. And they say to themselves, I'm strong. I know how to deal with that. I understand sin. I understand what I have in liberty. And I can navigate these waters. Why? Because I'm strong in my faith. And Paul says to that person, take heed, meaning think again. The Israelites, you know, they they had a lot more going for them in the sense of what God had shown them in powerful ways. And it didn't stop their sin, did it? He says only a fool believes he or she can stand easily in the face of temptation. Now, he's writing this to the Corinthians. These are the folks in Greek society who had this self-perception that they were of Paul. They were of Apollos. They're so strong. And Greek society rewarded and, and vaulted strength. In their minds, right? This is the thing you had to be in Greek society. It was strong. The, the country of the Olympiad, the people who valued strength. They believed they could enter a pagan temple in Corinth and they could eat the meat sacrificed to idols and they can enjoy the party and not get burned. And to them, Paul says, 
Your confidence is not a sign of spiritual maturity. Ironically, it's a sign of spiritual immaturity that you think you can handle that situation. That you think you can go in there and be oblivious to the temptations. That you assume you'll never fall. That is a spiritually immature point of view. The mature Christian is the one who recognizes the danger and the strength of the flesh and recognizes going in, I think I can handle this, but man, why would I even take the risk? They recognize, as Paul says in verse 13, every man is susceptible to a fall. No man is immune to the power of the flesh. No one is strong enough to keep from slipping if they entertain the flesh's desire for long enough. Sooner or later, we all will regret our lack of self-discipline. Paul says our defense is not cockiness, but humility and the reliance on the spirit. Even as our flesh brings us into a moment of temptation, the Lord is ever present, giving us an escape. And I told you, verse 13 is one of these verses that just has always stayed with me. He says, the Lord is always there with you in the moment of a temptation, giving you an escape. But only if you take it. When you're in a car going fast down the road in a freeway, you tend to have a certain momentum about you, right? You keep a certain speed. You stay up with the flow of traffic. And changing speed in a dramatic way can be tough. I mean, if you had to come to a stop, havoc would result, right, for you and for everyone behind you. Well, we can't have that. So what we do instead is we put exit lanes. Exit lanes are these opportunities to get out of the stream. And that's essentially the picture that's being given to us here in Scripture, We're in a stream of sin in the sense that the world around us is a constant stream of temptation and our bodies are a constant source of it. And yet, when something comes our way and we need to escape it, there's always an exit ramp according to Scripture. The thing that I think people forget or that Christians find surprising is that they're always there. You might say to yourself, well, I didn't see a way out of that one in the past. I didn't see a way out of this or that, and I I just didn't have a choice. Nonsense. Scripture says you always had an escape. My mom and my wife were driving to El Paso one time, and they were chatting the whole time. My wife says that at some point she notices the car starts to buck. She looks down at the gauge, probably the first time since they left San Antonio, and it's not at E, it's below E, and the red light's on, you know, the warning light's on, and now the car's literally running out of gas in the middle of West Texas. Literally, the car stops, the engine will stop running, and they're coasting at that point. You're not going to go very far at that point, right? Now, because God is gracious... Just that moment, they're next to an exit ramp. Well, they just take the exit. And it's a downhill exit, so they can move a little further. And at the bottom of the exit, there's a gas station. They pull in on just their momentum and stop directly next to a gas pump. Only my wife can do this, by the way. So that's God at work, right? I mean, clearly they were provided for, despite the fact that they gave no attention at all to the gauges on the dash. Sometimes I'm sitting at home on my computer and... A thought of buying something comes to mind. And and with the Internet now and Amazon and overnight delivery, the world's at your fingertips. And there's some things I buy that are sensible. And there's probably a few things along the way I bought that probably could have not done that and waste the money. When I'm about to buy something I'm not supposed to buy, you know what God does so often? It's almost comical to me now. The purchase doesn't go through. The card's rejected on the first try. Uh, The website won't respond. Now, here's my choice. If I persist, that website will load eventually. If I try again, I'll probably get the sale on the second time. Or do I take the exit ramp? He just laid it out in front of me. I know in my heart that's exactly what I'm watching happen in my everyday life. I'm watching God step in and say, stop the Internet for a second, Steve. Okay, think about it again. You still want to go forward? Okay. You had your chance. Peter echoes the same truth 
Speaking of Lot and the story of God rescuing those who won't rescue themselves, but waiting for us to take a step with him. In 2 Peter 2, 7, Peter says, if God rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled man, for what he saw and heard, that righteous man Lot, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. Remember the story of Lot? He was in harm's way as long as he stood in that city, and he didn't want to leave. So what did God do? He helped him take an exit ramp. But he didn't pull him all the way through. The angels that came to rescue him pulled him out of the city, but they left him right outside the city where he was still in harm's way. They told him, flee to the mountains or you will be destroyed. So they didn't rescue him entirely. They took him out of the immediate zone of the city so that the temptations of staying there were removed. And now, standing outside the city, he had a choice to make. That's such a beautiful picture of God's purpose in this. Take a step of obedience in response to his opportunities. So Paul gives us the bottom line in verse 14. He says, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I don't think it's a coincidence he uses the word flee here, of all the ways he could have said it. I think he's talking about Lot. The idea that, yes, God has provided opportunities for us to avoid these things, but there's still a step of of obedience required on our part to take that first movement away from what is holding us back by our flesh. When it's all over, it boils down to this, this simple rule of thumb. Flee from idolatry. Flee from sin. Yes, we have liberty. Yes, you can enjoy in peace certain things, but those same things can entrap and deceive us. We cannot live foolishly thinking that the world's desires have no power over us. Our flesh still has that power for a time. If we live in ignorance and without a healthy concern, we're going to grow spiritually lazy. And more and more, we're going to say yes to the flesh. And as we say yes to the flesh more and more, it leads somewhere that we don't want to go. The church in Corinth wanted Paul's blessing when they asked him this question. They wanted Paul to say, yes, of course, eat that meat. Go ahead. Go into the pagan temple. There's no such thing as an idol. It's all nonsense anyway. Well, and Paul's basically agreed that those things are true. But Paul reminds the church that liberty is not a defense to the power of the flesh. The test of obedience and love is not how much we exercise our freedoms, but rather how well we keep those freedoms under the control of the spirit. That's the test. Our best defense is a good offense. So flee immorality. When you see your flesh drawn by a weakness, respond like the athlete does. You know, an athlete who's training for a contest, when they discover a weakness in their body or in their athleticism, they start working on that. They zone in on that. They say, you know what? That's the weakness in my game. I don't dribble well. I don't cut well. I don't catch well. I don't run well. I'm going to work on that. Well, when I discover my weakness is X or Y or Z, what's the work? Fleeing. The fleeing of it is the work. So I say to myself, you know what? I'm not one who should be in that setting. I'm not one who should imbibe in that drink. I'm not someone who should go to that place. I'm not someone who should watch that stuff. Why? Because those things are wrong in and of themselves? No, not necessarily. But because I know my weakness. And I'm not going to take that chance because I'm spiritually mature enough to know it's a loser's game. We often tell ourselves that our sin patterns are unavoidable and they're beyond our ability to control. But Scripture stands here this morning telling all of us that ain't true. When we find ourselves corrupted in our flesh, our mistake was entertaining some earlier temptation that led us here. We say yes 
to the first desire of the flesh and we find ourselves down the road in something that we all throw our hands up and say, well, how can I get myself out of this situation? I'm I'm completely captivated by it now. Well, that may be true. Where did you start? That's the secret to following God in our life. Break it down, reverse the steps, get back to where it started, and then you'll find that exit ramp that you missed the first time. And then learn how to take it. Paul wants us to never get started on that road. As we come back next week and we finish this chapter, he's going to circle back around now. He's taught all of these wonderful principles. He's laid out all of this scripture, given us examples. And at the end of it all, he's going to come back and he's going to say, Now, knowing what we know, here's what you should do in Corinth with this meat issue and with these pagan temples. And we'll see that next week. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, conviction, Father, is never something we enjoy. Hebrews even tells us that as we hear your word and we feel the conviction of the spirit and we are disciplined through it, that it is never a joyful thing in the moment. But that if we heed what we learn, it will lead to the peaceful fruit of righteousness. We pray, Father, for that process in all of our lives, that we would understand that we endure such things, the truth of these things, and the the effort that's required to respond. We endure these things, Father, for something wonderful in eternity, that we may please you, that we may receive the blessings you appoint to those who please you, that we may serve you, that we may accomplish things here that you would wish for us to do in your name, that we might demonstrate love, not merely by our words, but by our actions as well. That we simply are pleasing is the central concern of our hearts, Father, and we thank you that you would convict us as necessary so that we may do that fully. But, Father, we are so weak and our flesh is so strong that we ask you in in a humble heart, Father, to give us the strength by the Spirit to to recognize and to take those exit ramps wherever they come in our lives, to step back from our sin, to guard ourselves from reaching the limits so that we'd never be tempted to cross them. I pray, Father, that those brothers and sisters here with us would come alongside us, not with judgment, and certainly not to accuse us, but to help, to pray, to encourage, and as necessary to exhort so that we might be all the more pleasing to you. I pray that we would gain the full benefits of a body that loves you and follows you by your word. And we would not waste the opportunity to bear each other's burdens. And as a family, Father, we might please you all the more. Let us continue to grow according to your will. Let us reach out with what we have to serve as ambassadors. And Father, we pray the Lord's return would come quickly so that we may see our full reward sooner. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.